have spoken to a son of a footballer before, but never a daughter. So this is the first. I think I really am the first as well. I've not really researched it, you know, but I'm pretty sure I'm the first daughter to have written about a, a fo- footballer, yes. Um, no, I'm trying to think. There's certainly no book in my football library. So the football library has every kind of book. It sounds a really great project, actually, and, yes. Thank you very much. I'm really, and having someone... Uh, you're not the first uh, doctorate recipient I've spoken to, but there are people who are... Um, usually found in libraries or around books in their home study. Are you an Arsenal fan by proxy? It's in my blood, Good. yes. Yes, you believe I've got a season it. ticket. I've got a season ticket. I go regularly. Oh. I mean, it's been tricky through COVID, obviously, you know, but um, yes, I go regularly. And it's a big... Are you in Bristol at the moment? Or no, I live in Leamington Spa. Very nice. Um, yes, that's right. And that's where my father died. He came here to join me and my family, my husband and children, you know, oh, here. Yeah. And, um, and he died in Leamington, yes. I see. Uh, am I allowed to mention your day job as was, as a kind? Because I'm interested in that fantasy Eckler literature. Oh, really? Are you? Yes, of course you may. Fact. Yes, of course you may. Though family theatre literature wasn't my absolute focus, but that's that period, yes, that yeah. I worked in. I think yeah. that was that was more so I could get fantasy Eckler into a, a podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I studied, uh, my mum studied modernism as a mature student at Hertfordshire, so she might. Oh, really? Yes. Mean she might listen to this. She might even have read some of your work. I did, I was, it was, came too late to... Uh, to ask her, but most people will know him as. So I'm more interested to learn the man, the dad, rather than the footballer. Just because there will be other podcasts, probably Arsenal-related, which will discuss that era. But obviously I'll relate yeah. to it because because it's in the book. But as you say, it's so famous. People know so much about it. And it's the other things, the background, that I find obviously more interesting. Well, me too, Dr. Lynn Hapgood. Or is it Professor? It's Professor, Dr. Professor. Your doctor. Doctor, your doctorate uh, was gained when and what was your doctoral thesis? Well, it was gained at Warwick University. I got my PhD from Warwick University in, in the beginning of the 90s. I was quite late into it because I school taught first and had children. And my thesis was on poverty in London. It was London literature. And I wanted to analyse how all the different people had addressed the idea of poverty. So that's what the thesis is. Ooh, my... So I, I, dealt, I dealt with novels and documentaries and histories and pamphlets and political parties, the whole lot, just to see what poverty really meant. Because that was the period, you mustn't get me going, that was the period when the word actually became famous. Oh. Everyone was worried about the poverty at the time in London. Well, it was a French word, pauvreté. So was it a French idea that had come across to the kind of workhouses and the almshouses of... London. I think it came more. I mean, the, the connection with France was there, obviously, but the, but the French culture has never had that much influence on that particular period in England. It was more to do with the panic of the church when Marxism arose. Oh. It's the very beginning of Marxism, you know, and um, a lot of priests were making a lot of fuss about how the, the poor were being dealt with. And so there was a kind of Yes, that was it. So that was a catalyst. The church and Marx were in conflict. Yes, and of course Marx Marx was in Hampstead. Yes, that's right, yes. Of course, he, I mean, he died, but I mean, Das Kapital wasn't translated until then, until the 1880s, yeah. Oh, wow. Although, of course, he was older then. Uh, By which point your grandparents were around at the end of the 19th century? 
and your grandparents they come were. up because uh, the, the surname is a clue, but this book, which is a masterful Eddie Hapgood footballer from Beyond the Touchline, it's a pitch publication, so you know it's quality. Um, Lynn Hapgood is the author, uh, and there are two Eddie Hapgoods. Obviously, there's your dad that is known by you and family, and I guess your grandchildren have uh, your children and grandchildren know all about dad but they must also know about quote unquote eddie hapgood as you call him and they will with this book for sure well, they do and i mean the my youngest granddaughter went to her first arsenal match about a month ago <laughs> they get baptized into arsenal when they're eight. <laughs> <laughs> oh marvelous and so they were able to get pictured outside the stadium I imagine. That's right. Well, that's in the book. Have you not seen the picture of them in the book? I've got two of my grandchildren there in the book. I've got my son there, both my sons and two of the grandchildren. Can you see them? I've got them, yes. And there, there you are as well with Brother Mike in the hospitality yeah. suite. There's some writing there as well. 17 years of the greatest game in the greatest company and I've had a fine time. Eddie captained England. And he's got George Kenyard talking about Eddie. And yes, there are pictures. He looks great. He's, your, your dad's a lot taller than uh, your son and grandson. Um, well, he certainly is on the wall of legends. But he was only five foot eight in, in real life. He was not tall at all. Ah. So there's, I see Abigail and uh, Sam Abigail. as well. What a, what a bad time to come into Arsenal. Because, of course, we had the Invincibles and Arsene Wenger's magical football. And after the, the brief reign of Emery and Sven Mislintat, who, and, uh, who seemed to be the director of football, something has changed with Arsenal. And this is a horrible counterfactual, but if Eddie Hapgood, who played for Arsenal in the 30s and 40s, um, was dropped in to an Emirates game, uh, perhaps the one that was, as this goes out, last week, Arsenal against Brentford... Would he be impressed by the quality of football? It's a question I've often asked myself. Yes, I'm sure he would to some extent. But I think, and I mean, this is complete speculation, isn't it? But I think he would grieve over the lack of very specific skills because the speed with which they run now, the athleticism on the pitch, means that often there's casualties when it comes to passing accurately, trapping the ball, dead, passing right across the pitch accurately. And I think he would grieve that that wasn't happening. And one other thing that I think that he might be suspect about is that I don't think he would feel there was enough individualism. Um, although he was absolutely a team man and the Arsenal of his day were a, a team, he always felt there should be space for the, the individual to move out and do what, on the moment, seems the important and necessary thing to do. And I wonder if we've got enough of that at the moment. I have been to Arsenal versus Watford several times in the last seven years because Mum's partner, Martin, shares a season ticket at Arsenal. So he always offers me the second ticket for Watford right. Arsenal, Arsenal-Watford. And the, a couple of months ago... Ranieri had just taken over at Watford. I suppose you could call it the Eddie Hapgood derby, for which more later. Um, but I was disappointed with how Watford was so robust. They would just bang, bang into the tackles, and we had a chap sent off. But watching Emil Smith-Rowe reminded me of watching Mizzet Ozil, whom you may have met. Just the, the individual skill, taking the ball on the half turn, moving it on. If everything goes through Smith-Rowe for the next 10 years, you could have the next Burkamp. 
at Arsenal. Have you been in touch with any current, current, current team uh, members? No, I haven't met any of the players, but I agree with you absolutely about Smith Rowe. He he really looks as if he's going somewhere, doesn't he? He is genuinely talented. And I haven't met Mrs. Mes- Ozil, but I, I feel privileged that I was able to watch him. He was just amazing. And it was a tragedy, it seemed to me, what happened at the end of his career with Arsenal. Oh, absolutely. And then he got embroiled with Gunnosaurus and all yes. of that. Um, the heir to Eddie Hapgood's number three shirt. So he was a fullback in the days when Herbert Chapman invented the WM. Have you read, by the way, Jonathan Wilson's book, Inverting the Pyramid, or spoken to Jonathan? Because uh, no, Herbert I Chapman is. Read, I haven't read that book yet. No, I haven't. Uh, and Paddy Barclay has written a biography of Herbert Chapman. Paddy is one of the nicest football journalists and indeed human beings. Kind of the Barry Cryer of football. We're talking the day after Barry passed away in Northwick Park. Yeah. Uh, hospital very close to where I am now because here is the clincher I can see Watford Town Hall from my window I don't think I've walked in the street where you lived near Carpenters Park in South Oxy but I'm a Watford fan so I've been to Watford quite a bit in the last few years you must find that quite distressing at times you know they always look as if they're on the brink of something and then they don't quite get there if there were time to talk about the perils of Watford. I mean, all you need to know is that my great-uncle Clive, who's been to Watford since 1966, is more interested now in St Albans City, in Clarence Park, than in Watford, where it is a, I'm, it's a cross between a spreadsheet and a departure lounge. And there are aspects of the, the team I don't like. And learning that... Actually, we might as well go into Watford now. Uh, I meant to finish the point. The heir is Tommy Yasu, but we'll get back to Tommy Yasu because we're now on Watford. Uh, and there is a brief bit in Eddie Hapgood, footballer from Beyond the Touchline, about a Watford board who you say are nasty and there's a corporate incompetence about them. Now, you're slightly biased because your dad was embroiled in that, but you do reference the fact that Javi Gracia, who got Watford to an FA Cup final, was fired months later. I, I hope I didn't use the word nasty. I can't remember. What, I, what he felt when he got there was that there he was being watched in a way that he wasn't going to be able to come. He'd been picked off, you know. And he never said that about the chairman, who he felt was very much on his side, but didn't have the power or the will or whatever to actually draw the rest of the board with him to support that. And that's why I wondered if it was a kind of policy that you got rid of, which I think I speculate about in the book, whether there was a kind of policy to get rid of managers, to get rid of players at the end of the season, because then you saved that money over the summer and then you started again. But I never knew that and I never discussed that with Dad. Um, He just was bewildered. He thought he'd done a good job. He felt they were on the way and he just couldn't understand why it had been stopped. But that was very much characteristic of my father. You know, he always thought the best of everybody with a kind of streak of innocence about him. If things were going well and you were doing things sensibly, if you were play, paying the players properly, if you were training them properly, if they were being looked after and the club was doing well, you know, go for it. And he never could understand the individual drives that directors might have with their own agendas. He found that very difficult to grasp. This was 1948 to 1952. So that era, Stan Cullis, I think, was at Wolves running the club uh, with Major Frank Buckley. 
Um, Matt Busby was just coming in at Manchester United, I think, at the beginning of the 50s. Did he pick up tips yeah, on how to... It was earlier, I think. Did he pick up... Did he try and run a football club in the way that Herbert Chapman did at Huddersfield and Arsenal when Eddie was at Watford? I wouldn't say that on the sort of daily business basis, but he never, never dropped the the Chapman philosophy. He had really benefited from the way, and you've obviously read what I wrote about it. There should have been so many reasons why Chapman could have just dropped that. You know, he wasn't successful for like 18 months after he reached Arsenal. He was too thin, he was too weak, he kept passing out. Um, and Chapman believed in him and encouraged him and coaxed him, and he got there. And he felt that was the role of a manager. He should be given that kind of space and time to his players. And he would always do that. He would always do that. But I don't think he was interested in the business aspect of it at all. And, of course, that's why Chapman had Alison there, because Chapman wasn't intrinsically interested in the business side. He was interested in the image and in the match, wasn't he? Yes. And at a time when not even England managers could pick their team, because they had a board of selectors. And Herb Mm. Chapman... but one one thing I saw, and there's a lot in the origin story of your dad. The first chapter of the book is, we don't know what his birthday was. Uh, and then in the second chapter, you say, nope, he was born in 1908, which means that when he moved to Arsenal in 1927, when the world was in black and white, this he was a child. He was, a, well, he wasn't a child, but in football terms, not even 20. And he's in a men's dressing room um, with, and I imagine, some quite tough characters, some of whom may well have fought in World War One, This was a men's world that he was in. It's interesting you put it like that because it always came over to me from him that they were really caring of him. Those earlier players that were there, the first ones when he arrived, he always felt that they looked after him and nurtured him and were very kind to him. But he did feel that he was a bit of a minnow. He didn't feel that he would ever... He did at times worry that he would ever be able to achieve what they were achieving. But no, they were very supportive of him. Well, as you should be. It was the Arsenal uh, in those days. And, in fact, the team had just been moved up from Woolwich. Herbert Chapman moved them to... He put a train station called Highbury, uh, or Ars- a train station called Arsenal, uh, when they moved to Highbury. Do you think he would have enjoyed South London in the way that he enjoyed living in North London? Oh, just, I, I wouldn't have a clue how to answer <laughs> that one. I mean, he... he just thought it was incredible that he had ever managed to get to Arsenal. Stroke of luck, stroke of luck. Because, I mean, his early history didn't really point in that way at all. But I don't think that he would have enjoyed the South from the point of view of Mum, actually, because the, the fact that Arsenal was in the North meant that he could whiz up to Kettering without any difficulty for that time when he was courting her when he first got to Arsenal, which got him through because he was so lonely and he hadn't expected to want to go back to little old Kettering and see this girl he'd met, you know. Um, but he needed her. So if he'd been in the South, it would have been a long journey. I doubt if he'd have made it. So it's an interesting thought. Yeah, uh, just popped into my head. Um, Kettering is where Sean Dyche is from. Sean Dyche, the Burnley manager, who is the closest thing oh, really? to Herbert Chapman nowadays. And he says that, oh, he's got so many pairs of shoes, Sean Dyche. Because obviously, Kettering is the the town of shoes. Um, Has it passed down to you? Are you a shoe? Is there Kettering in your blood as well? No, I haven't got Kettering in my blood. Um, In fact, it's rather extraordinary that none of the... My mother was one of 11. 
my father was one of ten, and I didn't know any of those aunts and uncles. Goodness. Well, that that's certainly... I know. I know. I th- it is goodness. When I think about it, I think, oh, goodness, how did that happen? But I didn't. I should say that uh, by the time this has gone out, um, my cousin will have gotten married. And Fre- in- interestingly, I'll only mention Freddie because my cousin Freddie, his uncle Brian, his dad, my uncle Brian, is an Arsenal fan, and my dad, Alex, a Tottenham fan. But I, <laughs> but here's the kicker: I had shirts of Arsenal and Spurs and Man United growing up, so I would wear them interchangeably. I think I must have found out about Eddie Hapgood when I was reading about Herbert Chapman. Uh, but it's a name that I knew, and I certainly would pass it on the train uh, when I would go come back from Edinburgh, from university. I would look out and see the Emirates uh, with that portrait of yeah. Hapgood three and all the others. Is it That's Charlie George next to him, isn't it, with the hair? Yes, yes. Have you met Charlie George? Funnily enough, I have met him, but very briefly. But my son did a placement at Arsenal when he was at school, and Charlie George was sort of has made his monitor. Is that the right word? Yeah, yes. yeah, mentor, yeah. And, um, and yeah, so he got to know Charlie George, yes. Oh, that's miraculous. Yes, you seem to accept that I would know the players, but what would I say to them? What would I do? You know, <laughs> they wouldn't be interested in me. Well, certainly Brian Glanville would be interested. I spoke to Mark Glanville last year because Brian turned 90. He is not in the best of health. Um, but there is a lovely bit of the book where... Uh, Brian Glanville was at Charterhouse, bullied terribly, but fell in love with football. And I didn't realise this, and I, I shouldn't know, because I, I did this big programme about Brian as well. But he would write letters to Eddie Hapgood, who was one of the very few footballers to put out a memoir. Uh, football Ambassador is the book, one of the oldest books in the football library. Has Brian ever come up to you or messaged you to thank him for everything Eddie did to make his love of Arsenal so great? No, he hasn't. But I spoke to Brian a couple of times when I was researching the book. And he told me that about um, writing the letters and how he was told that he must write any more letters to Eddie Hapgood. <laughs> One of the questions I asked him is, well, why was he so worshipful of a fullback? Because today, everybody goes for strikers, don't they? The magic of the football is the striker, the putting in of the goal. And it's un- unusual to think of anybody being very um, adoring of a fullback. And there was just this pause at the end of the phone. And then he said to me, he was the captain of Arsenal England. <laughs> As if that just explained <laughs> absolutely everything, which of course it did to him. But I thought that was a beautiful answer. It's a position that... Well, nowadays, Arsenal seem to dispense with captains like Watford managers call back. Because um, they had that kind of captain's committee with Jacker and Aubameyang. Both of them are out of favour. Uh, if Jacker's not suspended, he's getting sent off. But there is this big core of English players who have played for the national team like Eddie Hapgood did. And so they are carrying on this chain of Arsenal lads yeah. representing the area, the club, the fans team um and Tommy Yasu the left back is probably an example of someone who wouldn't have heard of Eddie Hapgood he'd have seen him on the stadium on the tour um but it just proves how different a club Arsenal are nowadays but the one thing that they do well the leader of the opposition is a fan for a start Arsenal as an entity that red bit of North London means that if you grow up there you will always have Arsenal in you 
Yes, I mean, I think Herbert Chapman was 100% successful in that, wasn't he? He always wanted not a successful season, not even two, three successful seasons. He wanted an immortal team. And that's what he achieved, didn't he? So as time has passed, but still the name echoes. I mean, it's not the only club that's got that sort of resonance, but I think something about its place in North London sort of gives it that added touch, doesn't it? I've never quite worked it out, but that's what he always wanted. He wanted a mythical team, a team that always went on and on. And that's what Dad felt he was helping him achieve. Yes. There's a little book. I'm yet to read it, but it's called Herbert Chapman on Football. It's like an A5 size book. So he he was a football man at the time. And the success that he brought to the club, he was the Alex Ferguson of his day. He had huge success with Huddersfield and I think then had to... There was there was something going on behind the scenes and he it, it wasn't nice and then he pitched up to London and I imagine that his reputation would have gone before him Eddie would have certainly known about Huddersfield Town's exploits in the 1920s as a teenager. I wonder if he did. Yes, he must have known something, but his ignorance of football when he was in Bristol is quite startling. Really, he was very very low down the social scale, you know, and he wasn't. He wasn't in a position to travel to see matches and he wasn't in a, a the sort of his family was completely non-football um and it wasn't until he got into the north downs league when he was 16 you know quite old when he started to play team football so he was very far behind the curve if you like which makes the whole thing a bit, a bit more startling because he never played a professional match until he went to Kettering. And I think he played nine professional matches there before he was bought by Arsenal. You know, so he he was coming from a tributary into the mainstream of football, really. And so he would have heard of, of, of Chapman. And I mean, he was always, always very keen to tell us the story of meeting Chapman. So he would have heard about him, yes. But I don't think he would be knowledgeable in the way you're implying there, following the leagues and knowing who'd beaten who and so, so on. Very interesting. Because at football post-war, it didn't have the same boom after the Second World War. If you hadn't been called up for World War One, if you were too young or if you were an invalid, um, that childhood, I suppose, was... Because I studied war poetry when I was young, as everyone does. Being a kid in the 1910s, uh, Eddie must have written about that in his book Football Ambassador, and you allude to it. It was a hard life in the 19-teens. It really was, and it was particularly... Well, in all the industrial cities, but Bristol really got hit hard by um, industrial decline. Um, The Avon was getting clogged up. Things couldn't come up to um, the factories for unloading. The the mines were being closed down. The the, the cotton factory was closed down. It was was really on a a steep decline. And what had been quite a nice working class area with nice houses and, you know, workers' houses, but nice houses, became slums. And that's what he was. That's what he was growing up in. And in fact, his family was a was a very um, you can't say they they were an aspiring family. They were determined to stay afloat, and they did stay afloat. They did extremely well to stay afloat. And out of the ten children, one died in World War in World War One, but all the others grew up healthy, had families and children. So they really did keep it afloat. But in in in, in a really difficult time, you're right. And with World War One finishing, 
all the t- soldiers coming back, you know, wanted jobs. They might be injured. They might have to uh, be looked after. Some of them were shell-shocked, you know, and he, he did remember that kind of mess that that part of Bristol was in at the time. And there was also a pandemic. So was, and yeah, Bristol, and if germs spread through insalubrity, which is not a word, so Bristol must not have been a great place to try and survive pandemic in. No, it was a, it was in a, well, and particularly that bit in east southeast Bristol too. I mean, it was the funny thing is you come out from there to Temple Meads. Do you know Bristol at all? Uh, no, I I should, but I've never been. I lived with someone who went to Clifton College, and my brother is uh, getting married to someone who grew up in Somerset and knows Bristol well. But I know Temple Meads by name. Yes, well, I, all the point is it's a very, very f- a fabulous station with this Gothic front and within the stones throw is St Mary Radcliffe, which is, you know, a, a, a wonderful church that visitors come to visit all the time. It's a tourist point. And yet just behind that station is where Dad lived. And it was such a terrible place. And it's they're always trying to rescue it now, but it still doesn't quite get rescued. Well, there is a plaque to Eddie Hapgood, and the, the, the plate section, the photo section, is fantastic in this book. Uh, Edris Albert Hapgood, born in Union Road. I've, I lived next door to an Idris, who was Welsh, but Edris must have been a corruption of that. Oh, it's so funny you should say that, because for ages I thought, I such a boring dad. Perhaps he's really a Welsh chieftain. Perhaps he was really called Idris, you know. <laughs> but no, he wasn't. He was called Idris, and whether it had. But they did. They did live in Wales. Quite. There was a lot of contact with Wales. So further back, there probably is of some Welsh blood there. But he was definitely Idris. <laughs> so yes, in another way. <laughs> Well, there's a current player, there's a Chelsea player called Lewis Hall, and his face looks not unlike a player who would have played with Eddie Hapgood. His nose is perhaps a bit more straight. But you know what a footballer from the 20s and 30s looks like because we have photos of Viv Woodward and Cliff Bastin and Dixie Dean. It's the swept back hair. Um, If you're a defender, your nose is out of joint. Uh, If you're a goalkeeper, you're palming away a shot. Football in the 20s and 30s in the Chapman era... You had to be there to see it. You could just about get it on the radio in the 30s, certainly. So would it be fair to say that Arsenal um, rode the wave of the talking pictures and mass media to become the best-known club of that era? Yes, that was definitely the agenda. And and George Allison, who worked for the BBC, did he? Or whether he was a freelance journalist, um, he worked on that the whole time. Yes. So Pathé News would take clips of them um, going off on tours and around the country. And, of course, he gave the first commentary of the FA Cup um, when Arsenal were playing. Yes, they really were brilliant at publicity. So, I mean, turning the station into Arsenal Station obviously was a huge thing, wasn't it? That'll always be Arsenal Station. So whether you, even if the club vanishes, it'll still be there, rooted in history, won't it? (laughs) Yes, they were definitely like... And also, Herbert Chapman was always determined to have players that were... And this is something that I think is very important. He really wanted them to be gentlemen. Not in a snobby way, but to develop themselves, to aspire, to want to, to want to look after themselves, to maintain their families, to be able to move in society. And he really worked on that. I think that that's something that football didn't have in the 30s. As you say, 
when you looked at them, they looked like rough guys. They might have been thoroughly nice people, but they looked rough guys, didn't they? Well, I suppose it was still, and it is so tedious, that comparing footballers to soldiers, you always hear army, campaign. No, no. Shots like bullets. I'm not having any of that. There's no life or death, apart from if you're Christian Eriksen last year, about football. It is a game. It is sport. It's entertainment. And Herbert Chapman knew that to get a crowd and money to pay for the top talent, you needed some characters. And in the second half of this chat, we'll get into the character of, quote unquote, Eddie Hapgood, the footballer of Arsenal and England. When did you first see footage of him playing? Do you know, I, could, I can't answer that question. It would be really relatively recently, um, in the sense that I, the first time I saw it was actually at the cinema, when they ran a, a sort of, you know how they used to do clips after the main films, and they did a passé um, clip of a match. But that, that's about all I've seen. Goodness. Well, I suppose... In the way that well, I lived next to the Royal Mile, I would never go to the Royal Mile in Edinburgh because I knew what it was. If you if you grow up being the daughter of Eddie Hapgood, Edris, I want to call him Idris now. Uh, <laughs> yes, Idris, definitely Idris. Idris yeah. uh, the football ambassador, Eddie Hapgood. You, you don't need to. It's a busman's holiday to watch him at work. I would never have watched my dad trying to sell someone a suit, for instance, or my mum <laughs> trying to teach someone how to speak English as a foreigner. But yes, you're right. And and would you be with Dad around Watford and people would come up to him and start talking? No, that, that experience didn't start till Bath. Um, I mean, I wasn't born until after he finished playing. Yes. And I never really realised he was a football player. He told us all these stories and it was always there in the air around us, but I didn't really know about it. And um, it wasn't until I, he became manager of Bath, and I tell the story in, in the book, when he usually would take us down if we were going to a match. But this particular day, I walked down with my sister, and we went in the sort of little secret cut-out door that took us into the stadium. And this boy saw me, and he said, you can't go in there. And I said, I can go in there. I'm the manager's daughter. And his face looked as if he'd seen God come down from the heavens. <laughs> You know, he was just spellbound that anybody so wonderful could exist as being a manager's daughter. And that was the first thing. I guess I'd be 12 or something like that. That's the first time when I read, my gosh, you know, and it began, the penny began to drop. 